Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. morning, everyone. And um, by that, I mean good morning, everyone. Man, it is so awesome to see you here. And I'm still excited about every one of you that's joining in with us online. We're excited that you're here with us as well. Um, I, I, uh, I'm just on a run lately. It's been so cool. I, I've adopted the position that there's really only two times of year in, in this part of the world. There's the time of year when there are no geese, and there's the time of year when there are geese. And I like the time of year when there are geese. And um, I, was, I was able to get away for a couple of weeks, and, and uh, sort of in the, in the middle of that second week that I was off, uh, the geese arrived back, and that was just kind of like a bonus uh, right there. And then on top of that, I, I, I was just so thankful um, for Bruce and Gord being able to fill in and, and to just be able to sit for a couple of weeks and listen to some other people speak into my world. Um, and they did that so well as they spoke on the last couple chapters here in Hebrews, and so I was thankful for that. Um, but this morning, just again, uh, sitting backstage and listening to you all sing. You know, I hope that COVID goes away. I hope that we get past that. But I hope that I never lose this feeling that I've got this morning because the privilege of coming together and, and worshiping and being in church this morning for me is, is tangible. I can feel it. And I'm just grateful for that. This just doesn't make any sense without you guys. And so anyways, all of which to say, thanks so much for being here and being a part of this. And I'm excited and, and already I messed up. So apologize for that. Um, all right. I mean, just as soon as I can see here again, we'll get going. All right. This morning, we're in Hebrews chapter 7. And now, I want you to remember again that as we've begun this book of Hebrews, we've seen the author building his case for Christ, as it were, from the very outset. He's been beginning to unpack who Jesus Christ is, his identity. Like, who is this Jesus guy? And what's more than, why is he important? Why is he significant? What's his relevance to you and I today? And so he's been building this case. And this morning now, as we come to chapter 7, he begins to build that and flesh that case out with respect to Jesus Christ's high priesthood, him being our high priest now. And so this chapter 7 is built around three sections, if you will. The first section from verses 1 to 10 are where he develops his case for Jesus as our high priest within the context of Melchizedek. And so we see that in the first section. Then in the section, second section, he establishes Jesus' Jesus's superior high priesthood from the perspective of a contrast between Christ and the Levitical priesthood. And then in the last section, from verse 20 to 28, 
then the author then examines Jesus Christ and his superior uh, priesthood by virtue of his superior character and sacrifice. And so this morning we're going to walk our way through these three sections, if you will, and then um, try and r- round it out with a few thoughts at the end. So if you remember back in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 6 to 10, and then again in chapter 6, verse 20, through the window of Psalm 110, then the author of Hebrews introduced Jesus as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is kind of a little bit of a, an abstract thought, if you will. And so now in chapter 7, the author is going to start to unpack that for us and he's going to bring it in and make it much more tangible. So it's not quite as abstract, if you will. So he's going to refer back to the other area, not just um, Psalm 110, but now to Genesis chapter 14, where the account of Melchizedek takes place. And if you'll remember, it's four verses just four verses, but it plays such a significant part in the argument, in the the development of the case this morning. So we're going to go back and take a look at that. You'll remember back in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to uh, 21, then that's the account of Melchizedek. And what's happened there is that these kings, these four kings have come in and and they've they've taken on and um, marauded through, overtaken uh, Sodom and, and looted and plundered and carried off a whole bunch of of captives and a whole bunch of loot. And Abraham hears about this. And so he marshals his guys and some of the neighboring forces, and he goes after these four marauding kings, and he overtakes them. And he captures them, and and they flee in, in front of him, Abraham and his force coming in. And so Abraham is able to recover all of these um captives that have been taken and all of these, the, the loot that's been plundered from there. And, and of course, this was significant to Abraham because as part of the captives was his nephew Lot and his family. So that maybe was part of the motivation for going after these guys. So as Abraham has accomplished this now, he's returning back home and Melchizedek comes out to meet him. So we're going to pick it up right there. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this morning, as we go back to these few short verses, I want to just stop and take a a look at them and and to think about that for a moment. Now, I can't help but think that this section of Scripture, these four little verses, must have been somewhat of a puzzle to the Jewish people. It would have stood out as kind of a a little bit, maybe even of of a conundrum to them. Why? Why would Moses have included these four verses in his account in Genesis? What was up with that? What's more, why would David, years and years later, refer back to Melchizedek? When he wrote Psalm 110, 
Because Melchizedek, we're told here, was a king or a priest of God Most High. Now, that's, that's just odd because the priesthood hadn't even really been established yet. It wasn't even a thing in, in their mind at this point. It hadn't been rolled out by God. So who is this king of God, or this priest of God most high? Before there were priests, if you were, if you will. And, and how would that happen that even there he would have come from outside of the line of Levi? It was before Levi was around, so he was outside of the Levitical order. So this thing sort of, I think, would stand as a puzzle to them. What was What was going on with this Melchizedek? And I wonder if the author's audience, his readers, then would have done what I think we often tend to do ourselves when we come to these sections of Scripture that seem to be a little bit more difficult to figure out. I wonder if the author of Hebrews' audience came to this section of Hebrews and they kind of went like, well, I, I'm, what, what's up with that? And they kind of would skip over it or kind of just kind of really quickly blaze through it so that they could get on again to something that would make more sense. I think that that's what we tend to do. I wonder if that was what was happening at the time. So what the writer of Hebrews does is he goes back now and he starts to unpack the significance of Melchizedek with respect to Christ's high priesthood and why that matters to his audience then and to you and I today. So we're going to go back and take a look at that now in Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. So if you have your Bibles, grab that. If you've got your phones, awesome. If you're at home, grab your Bible. If not, follow along on the screen and we'll take a look at this. Hebrews 7, 1-10. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling then the Son of God, he remains a high priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of his plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who became priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth, through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. 
All right, there's a ton of things that we can go into here, and we're not going to be able to for the sake of of time this morning. So what I want to do is I want to look quickly at five things that we need to be cognizant of as we look at these first ten verses of chapter seven. Okay, five things here. First of all, again, the writer of Hebrews reiterates that Melchizedek was a priest of God most high. He wants that established. He wants that understood. That this wasn't just some random priest, a priest of another deity, but he was a priest of God Most High. So we can't lose track of that this morning. And he draws their attention, his audience's attention then, and our attention again now today to that fact. So that's the first thing. Secondly, the author points out two things that he uh, derives from the name of Melchizedek and his position. First of all, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And secondly, he was the king of Salem, which is a short form for Jerusalem. So he was king of Jerusalem, which again then means king of peace. So together then, he is, Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And thereby, the author of Hebrews connects two dots for us this morning as he connects Melchizedek to the coming Messiah who was, who was prophesied, first of all, in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 as king of righteousness and Jeremiah 33, 15, and 16 as king of peace. So Melchizedek is now tied to the Messiah in being righteous and being of peace. So he brings that together for his audience. Number three, he points out, he makes considerable note of the fact that there is no genealogical history for Melchizedek here in Scripture. So he points out that he was therefore, he had therefore had no beginning or end and therefore is like the Son of God and that he didn't have an origin or an end. Now, this is important for you and I today. This is an, ab- an argument from the absence of Scripture, if you will. But it's a significant one. For, for the Jewish people, genealogy would have been important, especially for someone like this coming in and, and, and having such an interaction, such a, a significant interaction with their patriarch, Abraham. And so for them to not then have a genealogical record of who this dude was pointed them to something more. And the author of Hebrews here connects it to the fact that he wants it to be understood as being in keeping then with Jesus Christ. Without beginning and without end. Now, number four. The author points out that this Melchizedek was in fact greater than Abraham, which again would have been a bit of a mind blow for his audience, his Jewish audience. And he points out, he underlines this by virtue of the fact that, first of all, Melchizedek comes out and blesses Abraham. And the one who blesses is always greater than the one who receives the blessing. Secondly, Abraham then offered to him tithes. And again, you offer to the one above you tithes, not to someone that's below you. So the author of Hebrews points out again now that this Melchizedek is greater than Abraham for his Jewish audience and for you and I today so we can connect some dots. 
Now, the fifth thing that's important to recognize here as we look at this little section of of Scripture, these ten verses, is that by implication already comes the fact that this priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the one that came through Abraham down to Levi and the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood of Melchizedek supersedes that of Abraham, Levi, and the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, the system that he represented The covenant that he represented, if you will, is somehow greater than than the Levitical covenant. The Levitical priesthood. And therefore, in turn, once more, then Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. And therefore, that Jesus is a greater high priest than the high priests of the Levitical order. Don't miss it. Connect the dots. Jesus comes from the line of Melchizedek. And that's a line that's greater than the Levitical priesthood. So he wants that established in the minds of his audience then and now. The author then thankfully goes on to unpack this a little bit further for us in verses 11 to 19. But before we look at that, let's just stop for a moment and I want to talk briefly about the identity of Melchizedek. Because of the mysteriousness of his inclusion in Scripture and the brevity of his inclusion in Scripture, there, there's been a lot of speculation down through time as to who this Melchizedek really was. And because his genealogy is not included here and so on and so forth, he appears out of nowhere and sort of then continues on unabated somehow without beginning or end. So the mystery, there's mystery surrounding him, which has caused speculation. So there's a number of different thoughts, starting with some feel that Melchizedek was actually Enoch. There would be at least a, a bit of a camp that would sort of propose that or stand on that. It's, in my research, it seems to be probably the lesser of the four that I'm going to bring up this morning. There would be another camp, a little bit greater camp, that would say that Melchizedek was actually Shem, Noah's son, Shem. And the reason that they would propose that Shem was actually Melchizedek was because Shem, you'll recall, that Shem lived to be just over 500 years old, 540 years old or something or other along those lines as recorded in the genealogies in Scripture. And that's considerably longer than most people lived after the event of Noah, after the ark. And so to those people at that time, it might have looked like Shem was actually without beginning or end. He was here when I arrived. He's, I'm dying. He's still going on. So he continues on after me. And it would have been like that for a few generations. So there's a supposition by some The Melchizedek is Shem, Noah's son. There's also a a number that would present that Melchizedek was actually a Christophany or a Theophany, which is to say an appearance in bodily form by Christ or by God himself. That he appeared, God himself came down and appeared to man in the form of Melchizedek. 
And the, but that was actually just God in human form injecting himself directly into the affairs of the world and of man. And then there's the argument that actually Melchizedek was just a guy. He was a priest of God Most High that existed out there before and that he serves as a type of, of Christ, as an, as an example, as a forerunner or a foreshadowing of Jesus to come. And that as a type, he represented some of the same characteristics of God, but he didn't fulfill then the whole character of God, which is the antitype, which is then Christ. So there's those four sort of main positions or camps out there, if you will. And for what it's worth, I personally believe that he's a type, that he was a person that lived. There seems to be some sort of historical record out there of, of him beyond just our biblical account. So I believe he was a guy that pointed the way to this coming Christ. And that as we see what Melchizedek did and how he fit into God's plan, then we see much, that much more significantly who Christ is. That he proves to be an example, that he proves to be a, a connecting of the dots as God unveils to us Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's all about. So go home and take a look at that. I encourage you, come to your own conclusions. Today, this morning, what's important is not who, so much as who it was, but what we remember and what we understand and what we learn through Him. So let's not get bogged down on that. So carrying on then, verses 11 to 19. The writer continues, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law was given to the people, sorry, the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priesthood to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Now here, as we come into this section, Psalm 110 is coming back into view. Psalm 110 verse 4, which you'll recall. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right? Now, 
As we come to this section here, first of all, note verses 11 and 12. These are really important. Verse 11, I think, is better understood reading along these lines. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the Levitical priesthood was the basis of the law given to the people, okay, the Levitical priesthood was the basis of the law given to the people. I think that helps set us up to understand this better, and I think it's a better translation of the original language. Why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? So if we can establish the fact and understand the fact that the priesthood then is the basis for the law, not read that verse and somehow think that the law established the priesthood, then we start to be able to wrap our minds around this section better. This is backed up in verse 12. So I'm not just building this up in my mind. This is an argument that's derived out of the translation of the words, but then it's backed up by verse 12, where it says, a change in the priesthood requires a change in the law. Okay? So, not a change in the law requires a change in the priesthood, but a change in the priesthood requires a change in the law. All right? So, together then, taken together then, we can understand this to mean that the Levitical priesthood was not sufficient. The author is saying that the Levitical priesthood was not able to fulfill what was necessary for the law. That it didn't complete what was intended in the law. Therefore, a different priest was required. All right? But more, over and above that, in verse 12, there is also the implication that the right to make that change in priesthood remains with God. Because it doesn't say if it were to happen. It doesn't say if it was allowed for there to be a change in the priesthood, but when there is a change in the priesthood. Which the author is pointing back then saying, it is God's prerogative to change the priesthood as He determines. And then as we see has happened by virtue of Psalm 110. Where God himself speaking in that, in that passage written by David comes along and says, now you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Talking about the Messiah, talking about Jesus Christ. The next thing. The he of verse 13 is Jesus. And therefore then, as we see these things together, then it makes the progression of this argument through this section very clear for us. The Levitical priesthood was insufficient. Therefore, a new priest was necessary. As such, God has therefore then made a change from the old Levitical priesthood to his new high priest in Jesus Christ, his son. This 
This new priest comes from outside the tribe of Levi. And in fact, this priest is now a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is superior by virtue of an indestructible life, the author says. And therefore, that makes him a priest forever. As outlined in Psalm 110. God saw fit in his prerogative to change the priesthood because it wasn't accomplishing what he needed it to accomplish, what it was meant to accomplish because of our inability as people, our fallenness, our frailness. The priests of Levi were just like you and I, man, frail, mortal humans. Therefore, God chose to change his high priest to Jesus Christ who is indestructible, And then who God says is now a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, which becomes even more apparent and significant as we look forward. In Christ, the old covenant has been set aside and annulled because, the author said, it was weak and powerless, useless, because it made nothing perfect. And now, now, In Jesus Christ as our high priest, a new order has come. An order which solves that problem and by which we can draw near to God. Finally, in verses 20 to 28, the author's focus turns now specifically to Christ himself and the superiority of his priesthood over that of the Levitical priest's by virtue in and of himself. And it was not without an oath, the author continues. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Because of this oath, sorry, yeah, because of this oath, Jesus has become guarantor of a better covenant. We're going to get into covenant next week. That's going to be awesome. Don't miss that. It just gets better. So Christ has been, himself has been given as the guarantor of this better covenant. Now there have been many priests, many of those priests since death prevented it. Let me start that again. I'm not getting the emphasis right. You need to get this right. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for him. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. 
All right. Three things here really quickly in this section. First of all, again, Jesus' priesthood is superior, also superior, above and beyond which has already been documented, by virtue of the fact that God confirmed it with an oath. And that had never happened before. So God, in his prerogative, changes the priesthood, but then he comes along and by his oath he says, now you are priest forever. This is a whole new ballgame. This isn't one, he's not going to turn the tables again. There's going to be no adaptations, no adjustments. Jesus Christ is now priest forever. What's more is that on top of that, then God gave his son himself as a guarantor of that. That Jesus Christ himself has been given to us as a guarantor of this new covenant of this new change, of this new way, this new avenue by which God is calling us to himself. Secondly, the superiority of Jesus' priesthood because of its infiniteness is further understood by virtue of the fact that this allows him now to make salvation, our salvation, utterly complete. Utterly complete, which is to say that his priesthood is perpetual and permanent. And therefore, as we place our trust and faith in him, then our salvation is complete, permanent, and perpetual as well. Done like dinner. No more sacrifices to be made. Number three. Jesus' high priesthood is superior because of his character. Now, we've seen this earlier in the book, that Jesus was made fully human, that he had to become fully human in order to accomplish the mission by which, or for which God sent him. What's more, we saw that he has fully suffered along with us the temptations of life. So he's been here. He's walked in our shoes. He's done life like we do life. He's been tempted just like you and I have, but he did not succumb. Unlike us, the author reminds us that Christ remained sinless, holy, and pure, blameless, set apart. And therefore then, as the author has pointed out earlier in the book, that Christ came to make purification for our sins. And that as he was appointed to make atonement for our sins, that hereby now he has accomplished that through his sacrifice, which was what? Himself. His, himself, blameless, sinless. So he didn't make Atonement for his own sins, like the old high priests ordered had to. They had to make a a sin offering, a sacrifice for themselves first, and then on behalf of the people. But Christ comes along, and because he is blameless, there's no sin offering to be made for himself. He makes it fully on our behalf. Fully on behalf of the people. So that their sin can be now accounted for. That it can be forgiven by God by virtue of His superior sacrifice. Christ offered 
himself. That's why this is significant to you and I today and to the author's readers then. This is a game changer. This is a whole new ball game. Don't miss out who Jesus Christ is. Don't miss out on what he's done. What does this have to do with us today? Why do we care? Remember, how are we doing? I'm getting late. The author here has again been presenting his argument for Christ. His case for Christ, if you will. And he's begun with the whole idea that down through time, from the very outset of time, from even outside of our bounds of time, that God has been giving us clues as to himself. He's been revealing himself to us. That he's been at work in our world. Demonstrating who he is, what he's all about, what he wants, our relationship with us. He's been demonstrating how we need to get past this problem of sin because for him that's a deal breaker. It has to be resolved. This problem of sin can't be swept aside. It can't be overlooked. It has to be dealt with. And so down through time he's been pointing to the one that will finally come to accomplish that fully and forever who is Jesus Christ. If you will, God has been laying for us a trail of breadcrumbs down through history that you and I today can follow, that we can look back, that we can examine, that we can see, that will lead us home to Him. Don't miss the trail today. Don't miss the trail. He's laid it out for us over time. He laid it out for us, beginning with even Moses back in Genesis as he spoke about Melchizedek and, 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 and left that account in his in his. Book there, Genesis. He's he's outlined it. He's highlighted it for us through David hundreds of years later, pointing back in Psalm 110, looking and saying, hey, don't miss this dude because he's going to help you understand who this coming Christ is, who this guy is now that has arrived. The, the, The author's readers then would have known this stuff, but they weren't connecting the dots. You and I don't know this stuff, but we have the ability now, by virtue of what's been laid out for us in Scripture, to go back and understand and see the dots, if we care to, if we will. The question then remains, what will you do with this Jesus? What is your decision with regard to Jesus Christ? Who do you believe that He is? The author's laying out his case, but he's laying it out for a decision from you and I today. At some point, we have to decide, am I going to sign on the dotted line? For those of us that have made that decision for Jesus this morning, where are you at with him today? Where are you at with Jesus Christ? Because our decision then requires, demands a change. The author lays out his case for our decision. But as we're going to see shortly in this book as well, as we go into the next few chapters ahead, that that decision then requires a change. This isn't just one of intellectual assent. 
but it's going to require a change in how we live as we're called to live a life of faith and as we're, allowed, as we're called to pursue a life of perseverance with respect to our faith. Church family, friends, nowadays, that's, that, that in and of itself is a big call. When the author comes along and he asks of us a life of faith and a life of perseverance. At the best of times, that would be a big call. But with the times that are coming, that are at hand, I believe, that is going to become an even bigger call. Where are you at in that? We say we believe in Jesus. Do you understand him today as your high priest? Have you placed your faith in him to the extent that you are now ready to live for him on account of what he has done? On account of the fact that without him we are lost. We, we take our faith and we put it over, the, over my holidays, over my time. It's a long story. I have to, to preoccupy myself, I have to, to, I mean to relax, I have to preoccupy myself. So I've been looking at some different things. Anyways, um, I came across some stuff, and they, and they, they, they talk about, um, you know, uh, the end of our economic situation and so on and so forth, and they talk about having a bug-out bag, a bug-out bag of things that you need that you have to have ready for you. I think it just reminded me as I was looking at this, I think that we do that with our faith. We put faith in our bug-out bag. That's for when something hits the fan. We leave it there. It's in our trunk. It's in our basement. It's whatever. And it's ready maybe if we ever need it, but it's, it's in the bag. Guys, we've got to get our faith out of our bug-out bags and we've got to start and live it. It's got to change the way we live. We've got to be different people on account of our faith. It's not good enough to just subscribe. It's not just good enough to agree. The author's going to tell us that we're going to live it out. We've got to live it out. If you're going to say you believe it, you've got to live it out. That's why this chapter is relevant to us today because until we're convinced, until we understand and subscribe and lean in, it's going to be hard to live that out. And I believe it's going to get harder still. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, thank you for your word. And Father, thank you for your painstaking, meticulous efforts to demonstrate yourself to us, to give us a trail that we can follow, Lord. There's evidence there. Evidence that demands a decision, a verdict. Thank you in your goodness that you haven't left this flailing to understand this, to try and figure it out all on our own, but that you've given us a trail. Lord, I pray that you would help us now to find that trail. For those that don't know you yet, that they would be looking at this, that they would be motivated to go back and examine who you are and what you're all about and what you have accomplished for us in Christ because of our need. And what's more than God, again, Today I pray that for each of us, me, myself included, that we would understand our faith better, that we would be that much more committed and that we would persevere in it for the sake of your son who offered himself as a sacrifice for us. To that end then, this morning I dedicate this time and I pray these things all in Christ's name for his sake alone. Amen. Amen.